The following is a pre recorded program. 906 and News Radio 680 WPPF. Tom Kearney on a Thursday night. What is it, John? May the 2nd? John Sauter is our producer. That's the opportunity I have to bow to him. I have to do that because he turns the microphones off and on, and he'll shut us down right away. And uh, we have a very special guest tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about a book about the Civil War, but it's a little bit of a different book about the Civil War because it's, in, in the direct sense, it's not about battles and stacking weapons and uh, charging up uh, uh, Seminary Ridge or anything like that, but about... Uh, I guess the social aspect of the Civil War. I, in fact, one of the oaths that I took on the way out here tonight in my car, it takes me about 15 minutes to drive from home, was that I was going to shut up tonight and let our guest talk because he's going to be able to say everything that needs to be said better. Now, I, I may kibitz a little bit. And if, you, <laughs> if you want to kibitz, if you have a question about the subjects at hand, he said he would be glad to talk with anyone. The area code, of course, is 919, and the number is uh, 860-9783. If you have letters on your telephone, it's 860-WPTF. Our guest tonight, David Silkenat. Did I say it right? He's exactly right. David is uh, uh, in point of being born from New York. He was, I have to say this, people have to know this. Yes. He, he was educated uh, as an, uh, he's got almost the perfect education, as a matter of fact. If he could <laughs> just work a course in it, wait for us, he'd be all right, because his undergraduate degree is from Duke. And I don't gradu- want to install the state people. I don't uh, have any degrees from there either. Well, I, I would work them a little bit later, too. Uh, but uh, he has a PhD from Chapel Hill. He teaches American history. At, uh, at the is it the University of Edinburgh? University of Edinburgh, yes. Okay, and uh, he uh, got his PhD and he taught for five years at North Dakota State. At North Dakota State in Fargo, North Dakota. Fargo, yes, yes, yes. So I've, I've been to lots of places. Right. And, uh, well, and that's good. And he has three books and he has lots of articles. In fact, I gave up <laughs> the titles after a while. But he does what what uh, scholars are supposed to do, and that is he does research, he writes it up, and he publishes as as well as teaching. And the book we're going to be talking about tonight is Raising the White Flag, How Surrender Defined the American Civil War. And one of the reasons I want him to do most of the talking tonight is this is a subject that is is a new kind of subject to me and indeed to all of us. Now, we know about surrender uh, and raising the white flag, but we don't know about its its depth and its meaning, and that is what he's done is bring all of that to get, to get together. And well, that's what I'm trying to do in the book, at least. Okay, it's, it's I mean, it's a the book really began with a very simple premise. It really sort of came to me in a in a in an instant, and and the 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 realization I had was that the Civil War, you know, begins with a surrender at Fort Sumter. I think everybody knows that story, and it ends with a series of surrenders at. Appomattox Courthouse and at Bennett Place for a you know local site uh, and a number of other locations after that, uh, and that in between you know the surrender at the beginning of the war and the surrenders at the end of the war, Union and Confederate armies are surrendering all the time. You know, you know we can think about the sort of big ones at at Harper's Ferry, at Vicksburg, at Fort Donelson, um, and so the, the the genesis of the book was really try to make sense of why. Surrender seems to play such a prominent role at the beginning of the Civil War, at the course of the war, and in its conclusion. And um, when I really started to think about this project, uh, you know, in its, in its beginning, I, I started to sort of count up how many times Union and Confederate armies surrender, and they surrender on dozens of occasions. 
Sometimes these are very big formal surrenders, things like Vicksburg, and sometimes they're much, much smaller incidents. Sometimes it's the surrender of individual soldiers. Um, and, you know, when I started to count up all the people who surrendered, it was something in the order of 700,000 people. You know, some, you know, sometimes they're doing it by the hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, sometimes they're doing it in much smaller groups. And I really came to the conclusion this was a defining experience for many Civil War soldiers. One out of every four soldiers who served in the war surrendered at some point. You know, a lot of those are surrendering at the end, but lots of them are surrendering at other points of the war. Um, and in fact, many soldiers are surrendering on more than one occasion. So the book really began with a, this question of what does it mean that they surrendered so much? What does that say about the Civil War? What does that say about the experience of the soldiers who fought in the war? What does it say about the choices that officers are making about the war? The other big question I really sort of started off with, the thing I started to wrestle with from the very beginning of the book, was this idea that modern Americans have that Americans never surrender. You know, and I th thought about John Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis. He says, um, you know, in the live television address to the nation in, in 1962, he says, you know, there's one thing Americans will never do and we will never surrender. And that's a sentiment that American politicians have expressed over and over again in the 60 years, 60 plus years since Kennedy said that. Nixon said Americans never surrender. Reagan said Americans never surrender. Both the Bushes said it. Obama said it. The current president has said it. Uh, and, you know, these are not people who have much in common politically. They don't agree on anything, but they do seem to agree on this idea. Um, and it's an idea that's not just a political idea. It's part, I think, of American culture in the 20th century and the 21st century. You can look at American music, the number of songs where the theme is never surrender, never give up. You know, Bruce Springsteen, Tom Petty, you know, whoever you want to think of, you can have your own personal playlist. But, you know, rock music, you know, country music, there's, you know, you can go across genres. That seems to be a central theme. Um, and so I recognized from the very beginning of the project that the ways in which the Civil War generation understood surrender is going to be very different. They're going to have different frameworks for understanding it than we do today. That, you know, when we think about surrender today, we think about it as you know, sort of a shameful, dishonorable activity, something that soldiers are trained not to do. Um, but that clearly wasn't the framework they were working from, that... In the Civil War generation, they thought surrender under the right circumstances was entirely appropriate, even honorable, and even heroic on occasion. And uh, so it was hard to make sense of all that. It's really the questions that drove me in this book. You defined the way, if I may say something, then we'll take a break here and give you a chance to catch your breath. Uh, the way in which they, the people looked at the war and whether mm. it was brutal or not or... I can remember when I was a little kid learning that wars had rules, and I, mm. it took me a while to adjust to that. You know, I thought you went out and killed everybody you could, <laughs> and, uh, and, and indeed that sometimes happened. And uh, mm. uh, there continue to be revelations about the Civil War and indeed about other wars where people surrendered expecting something to happen that did not in fact happen. And those, that's something you talk about in your book too, and we will come, I guess, to that a little bit later. Does that make sense? No, I think you know that's one of the 
central things I recognized in writing this was that they had expectations and rules that, that they thought how wars should be fought. You know, and we think of the Civil War as being this very bloody war, and it was an extraordinarily bloody war. It's the bloodiest war in American history. Um, you know, the, the old figure is 620,000. The new figure is three quarters of a million men died in the war, um, which is horrific on every level. I mean, it's basically as much as all Americans died in every other American war put together um, with a much smaller population, obviously, than we have today. But if you think about all the men who were able to surrender and therefore didn't die because they had this option to surrender, you know, we start to think about the war in a different, different sense. Is it, is it just die or suffer some other other thing? For instance, uh, like Andersonville or yeah. something like that. But uh, and, and what's going through my head, I'm pretending that I'm a listener out there now, and I'm just, I've read, read some of your book, mm. and, uh, but is it, is it just die or, or something else that, that, that can happen to them? Uh, the American Civil War. And maybe you don't want to roam around into this territory, but I've got you here tonight. Maybe I can sure. ask you about it. It's a strange war in that it is uh, – we have this humongous thing going on, people surrendering, people dying. And at the end of it, I think only one soldier was executed. The, I mean uh, – Well, there, there's a few people executed. You know, there's there's one person for running a prison badly, and there's people who are associated with the Lincoln assassination. Okay. But compared to how – you know, on a – Transnational, but you think about how civil wars end generally, they yeah. usually end in a pretty bloody way. And right, and, and ours, ours doesn't. Ours ends with, you know, they, they imprison a handful of Confederate leaders, but everybody else from Robert E. Lee on down, they parole well, and I allow can them to go home. I can remember, and then we, we had better stop or John will have a connection <laughs> in there, uh, a professor who said that Lincoln worked hard early on to define it in such a way that— uh, the people in rebellion mm. would not be; it would be easy to to bring them back into the fold and to not define define it so that they would be regarded as traitorous and therefore susceptible of being hanged or shot or whatever and so on. And that's going to be an interesting topic as we begin to our our this, the what is sesquicentennial of Reconstruction exactly here, yeah. as we come along. His name is David Selkinat. The book is Raising the White Flag, How Surrender Defined the American Civil War. You can already tell that it's going to be interesting. We'll be back with David in just a couple of minutes. 921 News Radio 680 WPTF. Tom Kearney here on a Thursday night. The book is Raising the White Flag, How Surrender Defined the American Civil War. It's about the war and the things that changed were changed because of the war and that that changed the war and the way it was fought and the way American history was lived, uh, written uh, by David Selkinat, who is a, uh, I'm going to say a professor. He's a lecturer at, yeah. that's at the University, of Edinburgh, University yeah. of Edinburgh. And where were we, David? Where, 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 where do we go from here? Well, I think a, a good place to start might be to sort of think about, you know, the, the surrender people think of is the one that, that starts the war, Fort Sumter, right? Okay. Which is, I think, a story I think all Americans know. You know, there's this, the Fort Sumter, of course, is this fort in, in Charleston Harbor. It has this small garrison led by Robert Anderson. Uh, that a crisis develops there when South Carolina secedes from the Union in December of 1860, and it's a crisis that intensifies during the final months of the Buchanan administration and the Lincoln administration that culminates in uh, the Confederates demanding that Robert Anderson surrender this garrison on this, this small little um, fortress on an island. Uh, his refusal, them firing on the fort, um, 
and then 34 hours later surrendering the fort. Um, I'm imagining that's a story that most of the listeners have heard and, and know because that's a sort of a, a foundational story that everyone learns in high school and, and, and <laughs> university and whatnot. Um, but there's, I think there's ways in which you can sort of think about how that shapes all the things that come afterwards. Um, the first thing people probably don't realize is that's actually not the first surrender of the Civil War. There are actually a whole series of surrenders that happened before uh, Fort Sumter. Probably the most interesting happens more than a thousand miles to the west where David Twiggs surrenders. Uh, Twiggs is now a largely forgotten general, but at the time he was, um, he commanded the Department of Texas, which was the second or third best appointment in the U.S. Army. He commanded 15% of the entire U.S. Army at this point. Um, and he's in some ways like Robert Anderson. He's a Southerner. He's from a slaveholding family. He's a career military guy. He had fought in Mexico and what have you. Uh, but unlike Anderson, uh, Twiggs openly had Southern sympathies uh, and gets asked to be, he asks Washington to relieve him of command. Uh, and before somebody could relieve him of command, he's surrounded by uh, Confederate forces and surrenders his entire command to them uh, without firing a shot, without putting up any meaningful defense. Um, his headquarters, by the way, and this is an, sort of an interesting irony, uh, was the Alamo in San Antonio. So uh, famously, of course, in the Texas War of Independence, they uh, didn't surrender the Alamo. Here, uh, David Twiggs did surrender the Alamo without actually putting up any defense. And when he does, he is labeled as a traitor by everyone across the, the North, as somebody who you know, is, is not living up to his obligations as an officer. Um, and we actually have there some interesting eyewitnesses to Twiggs' surrender, one of whom is um, Charles Anderson, Robert Anderson's younger brother, uh, who happens just to live in San Antonio. And he writes a letter to his brother, who's then at Fort Sumter. And interesting thing about Fort Sumter, they get regular mail delivery throughout the siege, which seems kind of odd to us, but he gets, he gets fan mail, in fact. Um, but, so he gets this letter from his younger brother, and he says that Twiggs' surrender was treason pure and simple and warns his brother not to surrender under the same circumstances. Um, the other interesting eyewitness we have to Twiggs' surrender is Robert E. Lee who at this point is still in the U.S. Army, happens to be in San Antonio, and supposedly breaks out in tears when he, when he hears about Twiggs' surrender. Um, and Twiggs really becomes in some ways the first villain because of this, for the North at least, of the Civil War, because he surrendered in a sort of unmanly way by, without putting up any meaningful defense. Anderson, on the other hand, the commander at, at Fort Sumter, becomes in some ways the first hero of the Civil War. He's treated, he's late called by, by northern newspapers and politicians as a hero for his conduct there and for the way he surrendered his garrison. He allowed his men to live. Right? He fought for as long as he could. He recognized that continuing to fight would only mean the death of his men. And so he chose to stop fighting rather than allow that to happen. And so when the garrison is surrendered. The Confederates allow Anderson and his garrison to, to leave on board a ship. They go up to New York and they have an enormous celebration for him in New York. They have the New York Times describes it as the population of the entire city comes out to see Anderson and his men. And he is you know, described as a hero. And I think that's sort of indicative of the ways in which people in the Civil War era thought about surrender. One, if you surrendered under the right circumstances, if you had sort of met the threshold of when you're supposed to surrender by refusing initially, putting up a fight, 
recognizing that continuing to fight is only going to mean the death of your man unnecessarily, okay. then it was honorable to, to do so. Does the question of expectations hmm. of the person you're surrendering to fit, fit into this too? And that is, you, you, all those things can work, but if you think these people are, are let's say, bad people. Yeah. Uh, does, well, so from most um, people who are fighting the Civil War, they expect that they are going to be treated like soldiers, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so for most of the war, that seems to be the sort of the standard established by Robert Anderson is the standard. Um, and, you know, there's an example I talk about in the book in um, May of 1865 uh, when after Lee has surrendered, after you know, Johnston has surrendered, after, you know, uh, Taylor has surrendered, a bunch of other people surrendered, there's basically one big Confederate command left, and that's Kirby Smith in Texas. Uh, and the U.S. Army sends a courier out to him, and they say, basically, I'm not sure you know what's going to be happening east of the Mississippi, but everyone else has surrendered. Would you like to? Uh, and Kirby Smith says effectively, no. And the courier says, well, can I have a reason so I can go back to my boss and tell them why? And, and his, his, his explanation here, it's this very lengthy letter, in which he says that an officer can surrender his command only when he's resisted to the utmost of his power. You know, he says, basically, there are rules about when I can surrender, when I can't surrender. We haven't met that threshold yet. Or to put it a different way, I can't surrender yet because you haven't attacked me yet. So, um, you know, that seems to be the standard for most of the war. There are a few categories, though, of soldiers for whom surrender is particularly perilous. Um, if you are an, an African-American soldier, uh, surrender is, it works very differently than it does for everybody else. Because uh, when the Union Army introduces African-American soldiers, the Confederates conclude that um, black soldiers are not legitimate soldiers, but are, in fact, slaves in rebellion, slaves who have run away, and say that they will be treated, if captured, not as prisoners of war, but as runaway slaves and returned to bondage. That's sort of the official Confederate policy. In practice, however, the sort of um, lived Confederate policy was that African-Americans who try to surrender are often executed. And we have a number of examples of this. Uh, probably the most famous, the one people are probably familiar with, is the massacre at Fort Pillow, um, conducted by Confederates under Nathan Bedford Forrest. But there are dozens other, of other examples of Confederates taking black prisoners and executing them. This is in Tennessee yes. early in the war, right? Uh, no, it's actually late in late the war. Late in the war, 64, okay. I mean, right. The Union Army only introduces black soldiers roughly halfway well, through. Well, that's where I was getting lost in yeah. my mind. Was, but but I, anyway, western Tennessee. Yeah, um, but you also have examples of that um, you know, in North Carolina. There, there's at the Battle of Plymouth in, in 64, there are African-American soldiers who are butchered by Confederates. And so, you know, there's this... Um, Black soldiers realize that they can't – that the rules are different for them, that they can't surrender because, you know, they're either going to end up re-enslaved or they're going to be end up executed. Um, we need to stop for just, great, just to sure. check the news. Catch your breath. We'll come back and we'll extend this. Also, one of the most interesting things I found in your book is about prisoner exchanges. Yes, yeah, we'll talk about that. We'll come back. The following is a pre-recorded program. WPTF. Before we go back to talk with Professor David Selkin of the University of Edinburgh, who has a book about the Civil War, 
Um, tomorrow night, of course, is Friday night, and so it's going to be trivia night. Uh, next week, a couple of particular shows that I want to draw your attention to. Wednesday night, uh, Tony Rigsby, our baseball guy, is going to be here to talk about the baseball season. You know, uh, he keeps up with the, the Durham Bulls and also the major leagues and the Mudcats and the Woodpeckers and all of that stuff. And on Thursday night, Rob Christensen, formerly writer for the News Number Server, has a new book out about the boys from the Hallfields, the Scott family. Mm. And it's uh, a good book. And Rob is uh, a great writer on North Carolina politics, so you will will want to be here for that. But tonight we're talking about the Civil War, and as I was saying to David Salconet during the the break, this is a thing I've been reading about the Civil War all my life, and this is an aspect of it. Uh, that I had not uh, encountered. And and I think he said to me, if I, he doesn't mind me quoting him, yeah. he couldn't imagine that somebody had not looked well, at this subject well, because, as you point out in the book, as many people surrendered as were killed, and it was an experience. Well, I think the, the, the thing that struck me when I began this is that some of these surrenders people had written, obviously people had written about Fort Sumter and they'd written about Vicksburg and they'd written about, you know, Appomattox and what have you, but Connecting those dots between the two, I was very surprised that when I started the research for this book that no one had written this book yet because um, in some ways, you know, in retrospect, it does seem like a fairly obvious observation that the surrender does seem to play a very prominent role in, in the Civil War. Um, uh, there must have been a very big, I mean, a psychological come down. You know, you've mm-hmm. been in this. There's a great quote. I think Shelby Foote has it about some Confederate soldier who's walking home and mm-hmm. he, his shoes are all to pieces. You may know this quote. Yeah, yeah. And he, he said, I fell in love with this, with my country and I fall for it, but I'll be blank if I'm going to fall in love with another country. And uh, mm-hmm. he didn't know where his family was, yeah, where, where his pla- plantation was where anything was, and he, he barely had enough clothes, and he was walking home. Home, yeah. Um, I mean, thinking about the ways in which uh, surrender shapes the end of the war, I mean, it, the Lincoln administration in in um, February and March of 1865, so just a couple of months before the war ends, the Lincoln administration makes a very distinct choice that they wait, the way they want to end the war is not with a series of big battles, but with enticing Confederates to surrender and lay down their arms on the supposition that the war, the previous year of the war, had been the bloodiest year of the war and had cost thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives. And if they, Lincoln Lincoln told both Grant and Sherman and in fact other commanders that they should offer Confederates as generous terms as they can. So on the one hand, you know, thinking about Confederates at the end of the war, they Many of them are in pretty bad shape. On the other hand, you know, if you look at the terms that that Grant gives Lee at Appomattox Courthouse, you know, the soldiers are paroled, so they are allowed to leave. They're simply they're allowed to go home. They're given rations. They are in many cases given transportation. They're given a piece of paper that says they're not going to be harassed by the government. Um, you know, so Lee himself is able to to go home immediately after Appomattox Courthouse. If you imagine any other civil war in human history where the the general lays down, the losing general lays down his arms and is able to then proceed as a civilian, um, that's very unusual, right? And so I think part of what happens at Appomattox Courthouse is that Grant offers League very generous terms, and then other Confederate armies see that and lay down their arms. You could imagine the end of the Civil War playing out in a very different way uh, had Lincoln not made that choice. Um, you know, the surrender very much did shape 
the choices it made at the end of the war and, in fact, the ways in which Reconstruction started to play out. Now, obviously, Reconstruction gets very complicated very quickly, starting, of course, with Lincoln's assassination. But the plan you know, was to try to make it easy for Confederates to reenter the Union by, you know, not sending them to prison, by not prosecuting them for treason, by not, um, by giving them all the incentives they needed to return to civilian life. To kind of get back in a right, and there's a word that I can't get my, get my mind on here, but in a right adjustment with, with the Union, to mm. back, back like they were, uh, so yeah. to speak, as quickly as possible. Um, I mean, as quickly as possible with, with some obvious, some, some okay. m- major caveats, one being, of course, the, the destruction of slavery, which by, mm-hmm. you know, uh, March and April of 1865 is, is both constitutionally and, and otherwise dead. And they had to swear an oath, didn't they? Some well, of them. Well, you, well, you sign the piece of paper at, at whether it's, a, you know, with Lee's army at Appomattox Courthouse or, or with uh, Johnston's army, um, which, you know, surrenders at Bennett Place and they issue the paroles and mostly in Greensboro. They sign a piece of paper saying that they're not going to take up arms again. Um, and so that was there's a little slip of paper. If, in fact, if you go to uh, Mathematics Courthouse, they, they'll print out duplicates for you, and you can get get those signed. As a, but that was a slip of paper that said, I mean, it was sort of obligations on both sides. It was obligations by the Confederate soldier not to take up arms again to re-enter civilian life. Um, but the promise on the other side was the promise by the federal government not to harass them or to you know, prosecute them for their actions the previ- over the previous four years. Can we talk for a moment? Uh, I'm, I learned a little bit about the prisoner exchange, and you have an example toward the end. I think his name is Thomas Andrews Alexander yeah. or something like that, who who gets uh, just about every week he's exchanged. Yeah, so well, that, that actually happens with, with lots of soldiers. Okay. Uh, so, you know, the sort of background of this is to think about Civil War prisons. And when most people think of Civil War prisons, they think of situations like Andersonville or Point Lookout or Elmira, these sort of very overcrowded prisons where, where lots of people are, are suffering from disease and malnutrition and hunger and what have you. Um, and those images actually all come from a very specific moment in the war uh, in 1864. Um, but to really understand the the situation of soldiers that surrender, you need to go earlier in the war. Because in um, 1862, the Union and Confederate governments reach a deal uh, called the Dix Hill Cartel, uh, which was an, an agreement to exchange prisoners. Because neither the Union or Confederate governments wanted to hold on to prisoners. They're obviously at the period of the beginning of the war, they're holding the established prisons. But neither government really wanted to to do this because it's you know, they wanted to fight a war and, and win a war, not to run prisons. And the cartel established a system whereby soldiers who are captured, or soldiers who are surrendered, are uh, immediately paroled within 10 days. And paroled, that is to say they are released under the promise that they are not going to fight again until they are told they are allowed to. Uh, which to modern ears sounds remarkable that you would <laughs> take an enemy soldier, say, um, you know, promise not to fight again until we tell you you can. And but during the Civil War, they seem to have upheld these 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 promises. They took them extraordinarily seriously. So the first part of of the process is just you are paroled. Uh, and the second part of the process is that you'd be exchanged for a soldier on the other side. Uh, and once that happened, you would be then allowed to return, join your regiment. 
So how quickly that would happen would depend in part on what the sort of balance um, of prisoners was between the two, the two, the two sides. Well, the consequences of this is there's a period of time in the middle of the war between the middle of 1862 and sort of the middle to the end of 1863 in which civil war prisons are basically empty. Many of the ones that had opened at the beginning of the war actually closed down, and many soldiers end up surrendering multiple times. Um, and not only are they surrendering multiple times, but then they are then paroled, they're exchanged, they rejoin the regiment, and they continue to fight. Um, now, some people might listen to this and think, well, these guys are clearly cowards or something, that they end up you know, being taken prisoner multiple times. But that's not the way in which the Civil War generation understood these guys. For a soldier to be captured, especially for him to be captured on the battlefield, um, these tend not to be the cowards. They tend to be the bravest soldiers who end up being captured on the battlefield. And the reason for this is in order to surrender on the battlefield, you have to throw down your gun, you need to raise your hands, you need to yell really loudly that you surrender. You need to make eye contact with the person on the other side to accept your surrender. Which means you have to be physically very close to them to do that. To do that. Um, you, know, you have to be within 30, 40, 50 yards for that kind of exchange to happen. And oftentimes they're much closer to that. Um, so it tends not to be the, the shirkers who, who, who end up getting captured on the battlefield. They're running to the back. It's the people who are the last ones to retreat when everyone else has you know, fled chaotically. And most of war battles have a moment where there's some chaotic retreat of somebody. You know, those are the people who end up being taken prisoner. Um, and so I have a number of examples in the book of, of people who are going through this process of being captured on a battlefield or having their officers surrender them and then uh, being paroled, being exchanged, or joining their regiment and fighting again. So it's a, it's a very different model of how we think of, you know, people tend to think of, of civil war prisons as a place you go and you go to, to die. Um, and that's definitely what happens in, in 64. And 64 happens because the whole system breaks down. Um, but for the middle part of the war, that's a, a very different situation unfolds. One of the things that I think you do, and then we need to take a break, uh, is uh, give us some perspective on the difference of the Civil War than, say, an 18th century war, 1700s mm. war, and the wars of the 20th century, and particularly uh, in some of the modern wars like the Korean War, the question of what surrendering mm. uh, came to with the brainwashing and the soldiers who were, were made publicity, uh, use this publicity example. Sure. Uh, you, you bring some uh, attention to that. His name is David Silkenet. He is a, a lecturer at the University of Edinburgh. He is uh, the author of Raising the White Flag, I just looked on my piece of paper, and it says that this book was published on April 1st. That yeah, means April it, Fool's Day, yes. April Fool's <laughs> Day, well, but it, that means it should be in all bookstores. One hopes, uh, yes. And I, I, I meant to call my favorite bookstore, Quail Ridge, today to see, but there are lots of bookstores in the Triangle, and indeed everywhere that you might hear us on the radio. Uh, you can go to Bennett Place, the, the local surrender site, if they've got copies there in the bookstores. So, okay, uh, yeah. and uh, and it's available at the usual places, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc. Oh, etc., yeah. 
yes. And so, um, and, I, and I, I, I will not say that I read every word of it because it's one of those books that I start reading, say, oh, I'll, I'll speed read this. And then I realize after a while that I want to study this book. I want to read it slower and absorb it. If I'm going to put the time into it, I, may, I might want to make it count. And, and that's where I ended up on this book, Raising the White Flag, How Surrender Defined the American Civil War. We'll be back. 9.50. We've got about six and a half minutes, David, before before the program's over. I have really enjoyed having this book and having David Silkenite with us tonight. The book is Raising the White Flag, How Surrender Defined the American Civil War. If you're interested in America and the, the American Civil War, uh, this is a book that you'll, you'll want to... Uh, well, you want to get, you can give it to somebody as a present. and it's uh, Give it to lots of people as presents. Lots fact, of people exactly. as a present. And he has a couple of other books. You have written a book about, uh, uh, a couple of books about North Carolina. I, got, I have two books I've written about North Carolina. My first okay. two books were on North Carolina and the Civil War, yes. It's S-E-I-S-I-L-K-E-N-A-T. If you have any trouble remembering this, the title of the book, just uh, send me an email here at the radio station, and I will see if I can help you. Uh, my my book of interviewing says at this point that I always get to say what you say is, David, uh, we've talked about a lot of things tonight, but is there any one thing that you want to mention that we haven't talked about? Oh, well, I, you know, I, I teach, teach in, in the UK and uh, often my students are very surprised that the last surrender of the Civil War actually takes place in the UK. Uh, and that's the uh, story of the CSS Shenandoah. Do you know the story of the Shenandoah? I know it was uh, on the high seas when it surrendered, isn't that right? Well, it's, it's in Liverpool. When yeah, it okay, it has been on the high the seas. So, so the story behind the, the CSS Shenandoah is it's a the ship, the Confederacy, uh, you know, the very small Confederate Navy, mostly manufactured in the UK. They buy this ship and they use it basically for commerce ratings. They're, they're not attacking U.S. Navy ships, they're attacking uh, merchant vessels, and they end up mostly attacking uh, whaling ships up near the um, near the Arctic Circle, near Alaska, in fact. And they're up there doing this, and they uh, attack a few ships in, in 1865, and then one of them says, you realize that Robert E. Lee surrendered a month and a half ago? And they say, no, no, that's not possible. Lee would never do that. They attack a few more ships, sink the ships, take the cargo. Eventually, they find a newspaper that says the Confederacy surrendered a long time ago. And they realize they've got a problem because they had a piece of paper saying they're allowed to attack Union shipping issued by the Confederacy. But now the Confederacy doesn't exist anymore, and every, they realize everything they've done since then has been piracy. And the, ex, the punishment for piracy is, is execution. So they uh, decide the best op solution is to uh, try to get back to the UK because they figure they're going to get better treatment by the British than they would by the Americans if they get captured. So then they sent back around the world again uh, to surrender in Liverpool. And when they arrive in Liverpool, there it's at low tide and the harbor master says, you have to wait for tomorrow. And they say, no, we're not waiting for tomorrow. We're going to take this ship in and, and surrender it right now because we want to be off this ship as soon as we possibly can. And so the uh, last Confederate surrender actually happens in, in November of 1865 in Liverpool. Um, so, you know, there, there's this the 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 process that starts at Appomattox Courthouse takes better part of half a year before it's uh, finally over. Now, I don't want to throw a monkey wrench at anything, and I, I don't think I will, but isn't there a ship, the CSS Alabama, that is out there somewhere, too? Uh, well, the Alabama is, is, is done and gone, actually, by well, this by point. By this time, okay. uh, the, the captain of the Alabama actually, uh, at the very end of the war, attaches himself to Johnston's army. 
uh, and he is actually part of the force that surrendered at Bennett Place. Oh. In fact, he is when they start issuing paroles in Greensboro. Uh, he is first in line to get his parole because he knows that he's possibly going to be prosecuted for his actions on the high seas. Uh, but he knows if he gets the sheet of paper saying that the federal government's not going to bother him, then the federal government's not going to bother him. Uh, and so he, he gets his parole first in, in Greensboro. And oh, that, I just keep thinking about those people who have surrendered and they they've done pretty well given the fact that this has been a horrible war and an awful lot of people have been killed, but they don't have no absolutely no idea of what's going to happen now. That's to be sure, yes. And uh, what would, I was watching Les Miserables on TV the other night, not the musical, but the, the one that pretends to be, it was on PBS. Yeah, sure. and, and just how horrible life was in, in such an unsettled society, and this makes me think that these people... Uh, lived it, now lived in a very unsettled world. Uh, you know, 1865, there are lots of, of open questions and there's lots of, of potential for the way the future could unfold for, for, for lots of people in the United States, whether that's the former Confederates, whether it's former Union soldiers, whether it's for, you know, African-Americans who see this moment as the moment of, of emancipation and freedom and the opportunity to create a, a new future. So it's a really interesting and dynamic sort of inflection point in American history. Well, you've come to to do your tour, your book tour, and talk to people about your book and be here with us yes. at a very good time because this is the time of surrenders. Yes, I, I was uh, at Fort, Fort Sumter for their anniversary. I was at uh, Appomattox a few weeks ago for their anniversary. And uh, last weekend, I guess, I was at as Bennett Place. So I've been visiting all the surrender sites. I got uh, the, they had the reenactors of, of Lee and Grant uh, at Appomattox Courthouse, and I got them to hold up the book, and, and <laughs> you know, which is a great very strange moment, but uh, it's a lot of fun. Well, I have been to those places, and and I've learned an awful lot from your book. In fact, I learned that the Appomattox Courthouse place is totally reconstructed. Uh, as is most, as is Bennett Place, in fact. Right. Uh, but uh, it's like the Lincoln cabin out in Kentucky. Kentucky exactly, they, yeah. they don't tell you that it's not that it's not the one that was there. Exactly. Uh -huh. And well, one of the things that David does a good job with is tracing the history of how. The, uh, the surrenders have been regarded by history, and that's something that's becoming uh, much more vivid in our own history sure, today sure. As, as we look at the, the monuments and yeah. things. Well, the interesting thing about these surrender sites is, is compared to battlefields or compared to other places, there are relatively few monuments at surrender sites. So if you go to Appomattox Courthouse, there are one or two monuments. There's a North Carolina monument um, that's somewhat buried in the woods, but it's not like going to Gettysburg, where there are dozens and dozens of monuments every 15 feet, right? Um, if you go to Bennett Place, there's a very interesting monument, the, the Unity Monument that was put up in the 1920s. Uh, but a monument that was, at the time when it was put up, very controversial. Uh, and controversial within, among people who uh, usually agree on things. So uh, Julian Carr, who's... Uh, probably best known today as uh, being the person behind the Silent Sam Memorial on Chapel Hill. He was the main uh, proponent for putting a monument um, at, at Bennett Place. Um, and for those of you who haven't seen it, it's got these two columns um, representing the north and the south and has the word unity on the lintel above them. Uh, but the United Daughters of the Confederacy, who are usually Julian Carr's allies in, in these kinds of things, 
didn't want to have a monument at Bennett Place. They wanted to forget it. I hate to let you go now, but we're going to have to stop it. Oh, okay. David, well, thank you so much. Thank for you very much for having me on. Re Raising the White Flag, How Surrender Defined the Americans of War, available at your bookstores. David, and his last name is S-I-L-K, Silk, E-N-A-T, Silkenet. Uh, Silkenet, yes. Yes. And thank you so much for listening. Tomorrow night is going to be Trivia Night.